Welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Reverend Skylar Vogel. I serve as the senior minister here at Fourth Universalist Society. I use he, him pronouns, and thank you so much for joining us. What follows are selections from our service on December 12th, 2021. You will hear the reading, you'll hear my reflection, and then you'll hear a lively conversation afterward between myself and our director of religious education, Ember Kelly. Every week, we post these videos. We are invited to check them out either as a video or an audio podcast. We post them on our website, our social media, and they're at your favorite podcast streaming sites. If you like what you see, we hope that you'll share them on social media. You'll post a co positive comment or review, a like, a share, and subscribe so that we can make sure that the fourth universalist spirit and message goes as far as it can. Finally, we acknowledge that our commitment in so much of what we do at Fourth Universalist is the work of anti-oppression, anti-racism. Uh, and so we acknowledge that this congregation is located on the ancestral land of the Muncie Lenape people. We seek to acknowledge this so that we can continue our eighth principle work and make our congregation truly what it can be. Thank you for watching. We begin with our reading. This morning's reading is by the Unitarian, Unitarian Universalist minister, Robert T. Weston who served the First Unitarian Church of Omaha for many years. It is entitled, Cherish Your Doubts. Cherish your doubts, for doubt is the attendant of truth. Doubt is the key to the door of knowledge. It is the servant of discovery. A belief which may not be questioned binds us to error for there is incompleteness and imperfection in every belief. Doubt is the touchstone of truth. It is an acid which eats away the false. Let no one fear the truth that doubt may consume it, for doubt is a testing of belief. The truth stands boldly and unafraid. It is not shaken by the testing. For truth, if it be truth, arises from each testing stronger, more secure. Those that would silence doubt are filled with fear. Their houses are built on shifting sands. But those who fear not doubt and know its use are founded on rock. They shall walk in the light of growing knowledge. The work at their hands shall endure. Therefore, let us not fear doubt, but let us rejoice in its help. It is to be the wise as a staff to the blind. Doubt is the attendant of truth. After finishing a book, it often takes time I found for my feelings to emerge. It's like a whale coming up for air. Emotions linger beneath my knowledge and sight, and then all of a sudden they surface, knocking me off guard. This happened several weeks ago, and to my surprise, it was an academic book, very matter-of-fact, subtle, almost banal. The book explored the life of Jesus' followers directly after his death. It's aptly called when Christians were Jews. It explored questions like, 
How Jewish were the early Christians? What did the Jewish establishment think about them? What did the Romans think of all of this? In answering these questions, the author compares and contrasts the Gospels, the writings of Paul, historians like the Jewish scholar Josephus, and all the available archaeological evidence that exists. They work through small details of all of that to find those answers. For example, one small detail was that when Jesus got angry at the moneylenders in the temple, the author wonders, does this suggest that Jesus and his followers were opposed to the temple and the Jewish establishment, the heart of Judaism at the time? The answer was probably no. But we learn, too, that contrary to the gospel stories, Jesus could not have made such a scene in the temple as the gospels suggest. He could not have shut down the temple because the temple was absolutely massive. Think multiple city blocks, Penn Station, crawling also with Roman guards. He and his disciples would have been shut down immediately. There's also the question about the Jewish establishment. The Gospels speak of a whole emergency council summoned of Jewish priests gathering to deal with Jesus when he arrived in Jerusalem. But historically, we know that Jesus was arrested during the Passover, a time when thousands of pilgrims descended upon the city of Jerusalem and the holy sites. History tells us it would be absurd to suspect that the Jewish priests dropped everything, one of the biggest times of the year where they had so much to do, to all gather together, arrest and try, and send this guy off to the Romans and deprive themselves of all their responsibilities. Why would they not have simply arrested Jesus and waited for everyone to leave, for the holidays to be over. There are other thorny questions that this book wrestles with when it comes to the Gospels. If Jesus was so dangerous, why didn't the Romans go after his disciples? Certainly, they could have been arrested and executed too. They weren't hard to find. And how did Jesus have massive crowds welcoming him in to Jerusalem, celebrating him, and then all of a sudden they're all gone and there are massive crowds calling for his death. It makes no sense historically or logically if we take the Gospels at their word. What I had, what I had when I was reading this, I realized that with great subtlety, the author quietly and unintentionally, but devastatingly, undermines the four Gospels. Now, it's logical, of course, because if we study what the Gospels are, we know that they were written generations after Jesus' death. The writers themselves were not present for Jesus' life and didn't know people who were. They were relying on stories being told and retold, scraps of papers and imperfect, man, imperfect manuscripts. And they also lived very far apart. Scholars even suggest that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, was written all the way in Rome, 
far away from Israel. We can think of a game of telephone, but over decades and across continents. They, like us, these writers of the Gospels, would not have necessarily known of the complexities of the physical plant of the temple, how many entrances and exits it has, or the kind of rituals that would have happened there, or where the Romans' guards were, or what the priests' schedules were like during Passover that would have prevented them from holding a massive trial of Jesus during that time. How could they, generations later, continents removed? So several days after finishing this book and sifting through all these questions and these details about the Gospels, this subtle questioning of the gospel truth, feelings wave whale-like emerged within me. And what I realized I was feeling was a form of grief. I didn't realize it immediately, but it started to weigh on my stomach, gradually moved through my heart and finally up through my conscious mind. I was grieving because I started to think about how simple it seemed to be to deconstruct the most sacred texts of the Christian religion. I was sad because it seemed that they could be so easily dismissed and reduced by simple historical facts. And they seemed to be dismissed almost as an afterthought, as if the author didn't even seem to notice what she was doing. The Christian religion has been built on these texts, a faith that millions of people have based their lives around. I thought about all those people who wrestled with these stories, translating language and word to get the very perfect meaning, parsing truth from each turn of phrase, deciphering each nuance. I thought of those millions who have taken these texts literally at face value. Now, I have always been skeptical of grandiose truth claims. I felt for a long time that the Bible was a historical document written by men, not God. In grade school, I remember attending my cousin's church and watching quietly and with some surprise as they talked about the Bible with such confidence and certainty, as if they just knew it was all true. Later in high school, I was confirmed in a Christian church that took the Bible in their words seriously, but not literally. In divinity school, I studied the Bible, whose contradictions become impossible to ignore upon serious study and reading. And yet, a few weeks ago, I was still sad. I knew all of that stuff. Nothing in the book was new intellectually, at least in its deconstruction of the Gospels. Nothing was surprise, but my feelings were still very real. There's a part of me that realized that I always wanted the Bible and its teachings to be irrefutably true. Even though I was critical of the certainty that appear in the society at my cousin's church, I realized that I was envious still of them. They seemed so untroubled by doubt and worry, 
It seemed easy and simple. The meaning and comfort of, and structure of certainty makes one feel light and unburdened, far different from the weight and confusion that I often have felt because of skepticism and disbelief. I have seen the power that comes with certainty. And if Jesus was just like us, if the Gospels were just books, in our doubt, we lose that power and that comfort. Where once there was hope for something bigger, I have felt losing that sense of holiness in our midst, losing that sense of transcendental power that makes everything okay. I have felt the feeling of becoming alone, the fragility and mortality of life sink in. Sacredness turned ordinary, spark of possibility extinguished. Now I know as Unitarian Universalists, we are often trained to be skeptical. So many of us come from different faith traditions, and the reason we are here is that we have found that those faith traditions don't work for us anymore. Here, many of us are Christian. Many of us are Jewish or atheist or Buddhist or something else all entirely. But chances are you have felt disquieted as well by feelings of doubt and uncertainty. Had to wrestle with questions of where you belong because you don't fit. You have, may have wondered if the doubts mean you can't be religious anymore. I wrestle with this all year round. How you can be someone who doubts and still be religious. How you can not be sure what you believe and still be religious. Or even just spiritual. I struggle with this most around Christmas time around the holidays, because Christmas is the time where I most want to believe. I love Christmas. I love the feeling that Christmas gives me, the warmth and the comfort and the joy. I want to believe the stories of babies born in mangers, of angels and wise men and kings journeying from afar, of stars guiding us to truth and light, of the promise that things will be okay even on the darkest nights. I want the carols and the lights, the smell of pine trees, all of that beauty to really mean something, not just because we all agree it to be as people, but because it is grounded in something beyond all of our understanding and is real whether we believed in it or not. This yearning of mine makes sense because Christmas is so much about believing. Often that means belief in the story of Jesus born in Bethlehem. But the focus on Christmas belief goes far beyond just the Jesus story found in the Gospels. Last year, in the heart of the pandemic, my wife and I were looking for holiday cheer. And so we went onto Netflix and we binged Christmas movies. We watched nine of them, <laughs> and I think that might be a little low, actually, from what we recorded. Eight decades of Christmas movies dating back to the 30s to the latest Netflix special. We watched them all 
a culture commitment to a holiday that rang true. And across all of these eight decades and all of these different Christmas movies, we saw this trend, and each one asked us to believe in something. The magic of Christmas, a whole world of possibilities, the belief that transformation was possible, the hope and magic of Christmas could warm even the most frozen hearts. Anything was possible on Christmas, they told us. During Christmas, no one was beyond hope. Whether you were down on the, his luck, George Bailey, or the good-hearted Bob Cratchit, or the cynical Grinch, the spirit of Christmas could do anything. Not even Scrooge could resist its charm. We see this relentless focus on belief in the centering of Santa, and how we talk to our children about him. We see it with our obsession and our children's obsession with presents, where children often believe that anything could be waiting underneath the tree. For adults, believing in Christmas can be belief that we can recapture the spirit of Christmas that we have felt we lost after childhood. That innocence and warmth that so often eludes our stressful day-to-day -day adult lives that seem so messy and complicated as opposed to our childhood memories. We believe we can get back there. Christmas expects, I have found and feel, an earnest devotion, an acquiescence to its insistence that it is capable of doing anything. Other holidays are not so demanding. Halloween does not take itself so seriously, with its tongue-in-cheek flirting with death and mortality. Thanksgiving limits its faith to humanistic notions of gratitude and family. But Christmas asks more. And while some embrace its expectation of belief easily, for others it can almost feel non-consensual, impossible to avoid, and full of opinions about what you should do and how you should believe. If you are a disbeliever, whether in the Gospels or on your own religious background, or in Christmas, if you are a skeptic, it can make this holiday hard. You should know that you're not alone in that. You should know that it takes courage to ask questions and seek better answers and sit in the friction and tension that happens when we have the integrity of our own beliefs our own values, our own sense of self that butts into a culture, a society, religious traditions that tell us something very specific. I have to hope that deeper wisdom, deeper happiness, comes not from untested equanimity, but from long struggle. I cannot believe that the gifts of certainty, often those tidings of comfort and joy, are exclusive to true believers alone. Belief and certainty make it easier to get them, perhaps, but not the only way to get them. For those in disbelief, for those who sit in the friction and tension between belief and disbelief, between doubt and certainty, 
The road may be harder and more fraught, requires more self-reflection, more experimentation, more risk tolerance, and taking more time and finding comfort and joy wherever we can. But when we arrive, we have to hope the path of disbelief, of uncertainty, leads not always to certainty, but to wisdom. There, we hope, we will find that the songs of Christmas sound just as sweet. The beauty of any newborn child, holy or ordinary, shines just as bright. And that the ancient, flawed stories of the gospel, Christmas or Easter or otherwise, inspire us precisely because they are so human. These are gifts born of truth, not certainty. Born of doubt and thoughtfulness rather than tacit belief. But they are no less brilliant, no less inspirational, and no less beautiful. May we learn this Christmas to love these gifts for this holiday and for all year round. May we believe this at least and be glad in it. May it be so and amen. Hi everybody, my name is Ember Kelly. I use she and her pronouns and I'm the director of religious education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. It's so good to be with you all. And Reverend Schuyler, it's good to be with you as well, especially as we approach your family leave coming up. Yes, it is. This is uh, outside, of, uh, outside of my Christmas homily. This is the last reflection we'll be doing together until uh, the end of March. Oh, people are gonna get to see some, some, some different faces uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. It's gonna be uh, an adventure getting to, I think I'll have to record all of the instructions myself. Um, to, <laughs> I've gotten used to having you to help me. <laughs> so this message today, it was a fascinating, fascinating message in my mind. Um, and I found it was a really interesting topic to pick in this holiday season. I feel like uh, e even sometimes as you use that, you know, the holidays are just kind of like this cultural phenomenon that we don't necessarily maybe think critically about or really analyze any deeper. And I really appreciated that you talked about disbelief and how, how that relates to still celebrating the holidays. What does that mean? I think it was, uh, I think it was a really interesting message. Thanks. Thanks, Ember. Yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, um, I think particularly in relationship to the other holidays that precede it. And I, I talk a little bit about um, Thanksgiving and, and Halloween and how they each have their own kind of character. But Christmas really has sort of a, a relentless earnestness to it that the others lack. And it's an earnestness that that, that focuses on believing, um, whether it's sort of the Christmas holiday movies to the birth of Jesus. Um, there's a real focus on and, you know, do you believe this? Can you buy into it, this sort of magical time? Uh, and uh, for, for those people who struggle with belief, I think it's a real, uh, uh, it's a really interesting thought to think about kind of what we're being asked to do here and how much that should matter. Because, uh, because some, a lot of us just kind of neglect that, but 
but the way that Christmas has been been created in our culture, it's it is uh, it's it's all about belief. Whether and Santa too, right? Santa is all about belief, whether you believe in him or not. Uh, so you mentioned a text um, that you really drew from for this message. What was the the name of that one again? Yes, uh, when Christians were Jews, which is a, a book by Paula Fredrickson, um, and uh, I have been reading independently independently of Christmas. It's just a, it's a book that explores the first generation after Jesus, um, and so it looks at a lot of the the uh, beliefs of that community uh, and, and communities really. Um, but you know, what was the relationship to to Jesus? Um, what was the relationship to Judaism to Romans? What um, were the Romans and 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 the, the establishment Jewish population? What was the relationship to these these uh, people who were following uh, Jesus? And it gets into a lot of very um, you know big questions and a lot of very specific ones. But I think you know as I was reading it, it was both very interesting to to parse through uh, the larger questions, but also the more specific ones, um, which I talk a little bit about in my reflection. Um, that seems so inane to be unimportant but but I found them as I talked about striking because those little details are are, are so important right the size of the temple the the way that the gospels claim that Jesus shut the temple down when the temple was as large as you know, just a massive structure with many many entrances and exits the idea that like Jesus and a few people could shut it down is absurd um, and yet you know the way that I perceived the temple it was like a small place for most of my life and and uh, um, and I think it, it forces us to wrestle with, okay, so um, if the gospel writers, which we know, who we know did not know Jesus, who lived across the Mediterranean, who uh, were relying on sources from people who may or may not have been there themselves, um, and often relied on each other, uh, what does that say about what Christianity is? What does it say about what religious belief is? What does it mean to be a faithful person if, if so much of the source of our faith um, is inconsistent uh, and clearly historical. So um, there's a lot that you could say about these things. Um, and, you know, I try to distill it in sort of a clear way based on my own emotional reaction to reading it um, as a Unitarian Universalist, but also as someone who, who cares deeply about the Christian story uh, and, and, and uh, you know, grew up with it and, and still uh, you know, I joke with my wife that I, I, I try to read, you know, for someone as much as who's a Unitarian Universalist, I spend time reading the Daily Office uh, on a regular basis, which is not a usual you, you thing to do. And it's someone who is certainly is a fan of Christianity. So, so I think it's, you know, what does it mean if we're not taking stuff literally? How do we, um, how do we take it seriously? And how do we um, not fall into uh, sort of a religious uh, existentialism where it's like, what, why does this stuff matter anyway, if it's all just made up? Yeah, well, I think that that's an area where we uh, perhaps have something in common that we both kind of exist in this weird belief, disbelief uh, continuum that, uh, you know, you enjoy something like the daily office, I enjoy, you know, high church liturgy, I love our beautiful building. Um, I think it's an interesting place to, to live in that, uh, that dichotomy, but you know, uh, I, I like breaking binaries. I, I like to, I like to do that. So why not with uh, religion as well? Um, <laughs> it doesn't always have to be simple. I know when I was uh, talking with a few folks in uh, Vietnam that about that I was going to come back and do church work, and they're like, "Ember, like, you you don't strike me as like remotely religious. Like, are you sure that you even believe in God?" 
I said, but people like it's people need to know that it's okay to doubt. People need to know that that is an acceptable religious path. Um, that's perfectly fine. And I think you know one of the things that you kind of hint at in in this is like the the we don't have to take everything literally. You know, I think, and especially in the United States and our American Christian culture there is a real drive to make everything very literal, that it has to be a literal seven days of creation. It has to be, you know, um, I was gonna say a literal Easter bunny, but that's the wrong story. <laughs> um, but, you know, there is a sense that, that even with these, you know, more folk tales that we use for different holidays, like you mentioned, um, Santa, like it, it has to be real. Like you have to literally believe that as a kid, you can't have, you can't let your kids doubt that Santa's real. Um, we, we have this real obsession with, with literalism. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, we have a real, we do have a real obsession with literalism. Um, and we, I think do ourselves a disservice by focusing on it. First of all, it's a historical, um, it's not entirely clear at all that people from ancient times took things as literally as we do today. Um, uh, when we talk about people who, you know, believe the scriptures are literal, uh, in every single word. Um, it's not clear at all that early Christians, or really early anybody, understood the stories and myths uh, of their religious practice as literally true. Um, and so we should we should be clear about that too. That like it's it's not like oh people were all literalists and then science came along or like critical thinking came along and we got smart enough to realize that wasn't literal. Um, people were taking these things as sort of imaginative constructs for a long time. Um, I think the danger that we face as a society and as, as people who identify as religious, whether we are evangelical Christians or Jewish or Unitarian Universalists, um, is that by equating literalism with religiosity, we, we build our religious house on sand because we know if we do any study of the Bible or of the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition, we know how much it has been impacted by human beings doing things as imperfectly as we do them today. And if our faith or our relationship to our religious tradition is, uh, is grounded on that stuff, the minute we start doing any kind of thinking or, or learning about it, it's going to fall apart. Uh, you know, it's the, the, the fact that the Gospels are widely, wildly inconsistent with each other, contradict one another, are historically inaccurate in so many ways that are easy to disprove. Uh, should not threaten someone's Christian faith if they're grounded in a, in a world where literalism is not religiosity. Um, but it is only in a framework of, of a religious culture that equates those two that a minister getting up and saying, hey, the gospel's got a lot wrong, whether it's the size of the temple to like how Passover was celebrated to like the larger truths, right, of like, you know, the miracles, right, where, you know, it's only in a culture that doesn't, isn't comfortable with something other than literalism that that becomes shocking right to have a minister get up there and be like the gospels maybe not 100 percent true um because our faith should be grounded in something deeper and the question that we don't get into right because you can only give so much time in a sermon right is if not if not historical truth if not literacy literalism then what right what do you then ground it in um and i think that's something that unitarian universalists really wrestle with um themselves too um and sometimes miss right there's some some loss in, in mourning which is i talked about in my sermon too right of like something very comforting about certainty about literalism because 
you don't have to work at it. It just is. The world suddenly seems makes sense. Um, and it's scary and it's disempowering to feel like it may not always make sense. Um, and so that's part of what keeps people, I think, in this binary too, is that it's easier and it's comforting to, to feel like the Bible is unquestionable. I mean, I, I definitely understand that feeling. I, I think about, despite the, the trauma of growing up believing that the world was imminently coming to an end, not because of climate change, but because, you know, they were going to build the temple again and then Jesus was going to come back and rapture everybody and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, but I, there, there is an element that sometimes I miss that certainty that I was a hundred percent sure that I was right. And I think, um, you know, I had this, this religious journey that took me out of evangelicalism, but then I, I tried to be more certain. So I went for like the more uh, reformed, the Calvinist traditions that had a little bit of history to them and like tried to be very logical. Uh, but then I abandoned that to become Catholic. Cause I was like, I, I need the real certainty. Like they said, they got the Pope. Like I, I gotta just believe them, you know, it's certain like they have history all the way back, you know, like we can, we can just go with it. I, I had to have the certainty, but then finally I just, uh, that, that broke that I couldn't, like, I didn't, certainty didn't bring the peace. Certainty didn't bring, you know, it brought a, a false sense of peace. And I think that um, a lot of, you know, that literalism is a very American tradition, but I think it's also really, really present in like American evangelicalism. And we see it now with a lot of people, you know, there's a whole movement, I guess I was apparently part of a movement without realizing it, um, like of deconstructing your faith. Um, and, you know, that that's, that's a thing that people have pretty much often abandoned their faith because they, it's, it, it became an either or choice that they either have to believe everything literally or they just walk away completely. Um, and I think, you know, a UU space is a, is a space where you can maybe find a little bit of a different path forward that you can have some level of religion without having certainty, perhaps. That's absolutely right. I, I think that is a wonderful and beautiful summation of what Unitarian Universalism is. It's, it's often full of people who, um, who are willing to face the realities of what religion and history are. Uh, and to embrace their doubts uh, whilst not giving up on religion, uh, while still saying that there's something valuable in this. Uh, and some part of me and us want that and need that. Um, and doesn't even have to have words to it, right? Like it, it can just be things like there's something power in community, there's something power about meaning making, there's power in making the world a better place. Um, um, even the ritual of gathering on Sunday and the familiarity of, of religious spaces and services are really attractive to a lot of people. Um, and so I think Unitarian Universalists are people who so often come from other traditions and say, this isn't the right fit. I can't in good conscience, right, abide or agree with what's being taught there. Um, and so they look around for some other place that lets them really be who they are with all their doubts and uncertainties, um, not to throw all the religion out Although we do have people in our spaces who, who do, I'm not religious, I just come here for, for a different reason. Um, but we're not a space that demands a particular way of being um, beyond sort of a basic commitment to love and justice. And, and that can give people the space to be religious, but not literal, right? Um, to be religious while acknowledging what is historical reality, um, which is that religions are often made by human beings. And uh, if you don't like that, 
truth. Uh, you know, that's your journey to take, but it's just the reality of the situation. It's just true. So um, you can deny it, but that's going to be hard to be a UU in that space then. Um, and so a lot of us have wrestled with that often painfully to come in, like you're saying, Ember, to, to come from a space of, you know, where do I fall into this certainty spectrum? How do I relate to a need for that certainty? Um, and some people find UU spaces unsatisfactory, and yet they're still here because they want us to have that, but this is the only place that they can, they can find some sense of religious uh, community and identity, even if it's not exactly what they would want. You know, I hear a lot from UU Christians who just wish they had some UU Christian space that was like their evangelical church, but without all the bad theology. Um, and it's very hard to create those spaces um, for a lot of reasons, and that could be a whole other conversation. But, um, but and so in some ways, we're all kind of stuck with each other in that, in that place of skepticism and doubting and sort of irregularity out of, out of the norm of the other traditions. Because if we fit in easily someplace else, we probably would be there. Well, thank you for sitting down to reflect with me. Thank you for this fascinating message. Even though it's a few weeks away as we record this, you know, I wish you a good family leave. Um, and we'll be seeing you back on the videos before too long. And I thought that maybe it'd be a good chance to let folks know that next week is our multi-generational service. So that one's probably uh, not going to have an official video just because uh, the people sharing are going to be young kids and we don't want to be posting public videos without uh, familial, familial permission. Uh, but then we will have a Christmas Eve service video, hopefully with the entire service. Uh, pending that we don't get flagged for music copyright. And then uh, we'll be seeing you again on the 26th for a regular service video again. So Skylar, good to good to be with you as always. Thanks. And we hope that anyone listening will join us if you can, because they're not on Sunday mornings. We have a winter solstice service coming up on the 21st, 7 o'clock on Zoom or in person. And then Christmas Eve, of course, is, is both in person and online, 5 p.m. on the 24th. So we'll see you there, I hope. And uh, have a lovely holiday.